Hello, I am Sam Hardy. I help funders and non-profits enhance their impact. This podcast is about how to influence policy at all levels of government. I deconstruct high-impact policy change campaigns with the people who lead them. Each episode is a practical tutorial from highly effective agents of policy change. I explore their mindsets and strategies and what they would do if they had their time again. So if you want to make an impact by running or funding a successful policy change campaign, this podcast is for you. This is the second of two episodes in conversation with Lyndon Schneiders. Lyndon has 25 years of campaigning experience and is responsible for a long list of wins for nature. He is one of Australia's most highly respected environmental advocates. In the second episode, we delve deeper into campaigning strategy and tactics, exploring the most important phases of a campaign, the realities of working in Canberra, how to get a meeting with a senior political leader, how to write a briefing paper that actually gets read. We also delve more deeply into the climate and fossil fuel campaigns in Australia and the strategies being deployed. And we talk about the weaknesses of our current federal environment laws and a bushfire policy response. And finally, Lyndon gives his expert advice on the funding opportunities that he sees now and into the future. Now, thinking about the nuts and bolts of a campaign, this is for anyone who's a bit of a newbie, has got a burning issue and they want to see change and they don't know where to start. How would you break down the sort of phases of a campaign and the sort of fundamental components? Mm. Yeah. So look, you know, I've talked a fair bit about sort of the initial planning and planning and research is really important. You know, like to get change, you have to be credible. Like passion is an incredibly powerful thing, but you actually have to know what you're talking about. You have to be credible. You know, you can make something a problem with enough resources. You can make almost anything a problem. Um, But, you know, you're trying to create change and... You know, if you've created the problem, <laughs> you better make sure you know what the hell you're talking about. So, you know, it probably sounds self-evident, but actually understanding the problem at the outset and understanding what the solution could look like and understanding what the possibilities are of, of, of long-term sustainable change, it's actually the most important thing, you know. Like, that's the legitimacy of the activity you're undertaking. You know, there's social license for everyone. I always say, you know, we talk a lot in progressivist sort of circles around, um, you know, companies needing social license and investors needing social license. But, you know, social license isn't just a financial concept. (laughs) Social license is a democratic concept, you know, and you have to have credibility yourself (laughs) and you have to have social license yourself. Uh, When you're entering the fray, you expect to get long-term change. So that research and that orientation stage is incredibly important and understanding what the problem is and what the potential solutions are. Mapping out all the pathways to success, you know, as I said before, you know, from the conversation we had about Tassie just before, um, there's a million different ways to get to an endpoint, you know, and I think you have to have an open mind at the outset that there are, in fact, a million different ways. Engaging those across the aisle, as they say in politics, I think is actually critically important at an early stage. Often they won't want to engage you and that's okay, but you've got to try to and you've got to find if there is some common ground. As I said, environmental problems are actually problems of humanity and how humanity interacts together. Um, So you've got to reach out. You may be told to get staffed, you know. Like I spent, you know, most of my activist life writing to conservative prime ministers and premiers when they've been elected with the congratulations letter you want to meet. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But you start from a human basis. 
tell me, Linda, about those meetings. What are the hooks to get them? And then what sort of things do you ask? Look, everyone's got different experiences. I'm out of this game now a bit too, but I just tried to find humanity, you know, and sometimes people didn't want to find humanity and sometimes they did, you know. Like congratulating someone on an incredible lifetime achievement is just basic good manners and being a human, right? You mightn't like them, but you might know, and I do because I've been around politics for 25 years, that, you know, a person achieving power through an election, a mandate from community, incredible achievement. Like it's actually an incredible achievement, you know, and you should be recognising that's an incredible achievement. Shows some basic humanity, you know. I'm not saying they're going to basically go and go, oh, great, they congratulated me and, you know, all the rest of it, but at least trying to build some connection. And they're not talking about rhetoric and not trying to throw power around either, you know, like particularly for those who have newly acquired office. You know, they have got the ultimate mandate, you know, they've just been given a mandate by community to rule. And so either meeting or trying to write to these people, engage these people and demanding and wagging your finger at them and all the rest of it, it's just, it's just kind of not right, <laughs> you know? It's basically not right. Um, so I've written, to, like I said, to every uh, Prime Minister and Premier has been elected in the last you know, 10, 15 years and I've basically always said the same thing, congratulations, it must be an incredible honour. This is who we are. This is what our organisation does. This is what we believe in. We'd like to talk to you. When you've, and when do, you've had those don't. meetings and you walk into their office, how, how do you approach it? Because there'd be a lot of campaigners who are probably very anxious about their first meeting with a minister. They're all humans, right? Like this is the thing. This is what you learn. You can only learn for experience, but you can at least you know, share the experience and people treat it in their own way. All these people are bloody humans. You know, they're nervous as well. They've got their hopes and fears and dreams. You try to find some basic humanity. You find, it's try to find a way to have a conversation, you know. I don't know what else I can say about it. They're not form. It's not – people treat all this stuff like it's a game and it's like it's theatre and, and what have you. You know, I see effective lobbyists from all walks of life, and, you know, and the thing they all seem to have in common is they're very persuasive humans, you know, and they always look for wins. We have this sort of characterization of lobbyists as, you know, being these dastardly figures, you know, wearing their grey suits and their grey skin and doing terrible things and carrying bags of money into every meeting. Steve and, Bannon. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and don't get me wrong, there's some folks that are like that too. But most of the most effective lobbyists are always trying to find wins for everyone that they're, that's involved in the conversation. They're trying to find political wins for the politician. They're trying to find wins for their organisation, their cause, their clients. So it is about understanding, having a conversation to try and understand the needs and interests and the sort of issues that your opponent is facing to try mm. and find where those overlap in terms of a win-win for both totally. sides. If you can't do that, I don't know, you know. Like I said, otherwise it just becomes punch and duty. You know, it's all very biblical, but walking a mile in someone's shoes you know, is the first bit of advice I've tried to give every single campaign that has had anything to do with me. You know, I don't know what else to say, really. Um and I'm not saying every problem can be fixed by human interactions either. As I constantly say, there's huge structural issues out there that have to be addressed. But recognising there's huge structural issues, let's deal and try to build a connection for starters around a shared humanity. And then let's try to build an understanding that it's in all of our interests for positive change. <laughs> and let's try to find a pathway to do it. And sometimes, and often 
the majority of times it's going to lead to some sort of big public campaign and sometimes the decision makers need a big public campaign too. You know, they need the cover to move. Mm. Um, had a lot of interactions with business and pollies over the years where they want to see a campaign, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah. you're only going to find that out if you're actively know, engaging if in you're them. you're and you're building a relationship, you know. Like it's human stuff still. Working in um, environmental philanthropy and assessing this different environmental groups, I've picked up from the funder community in various places a sort of an element of disdain for getting too close to politicians. And it's, it's a cynicism about politicians. I always feel like I'm trying to defend them and how difficult their job is. Have you got any insights on that? It's really interesting, isn't it? It doesn't get helped. Like, pollies don't help themselves, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, some of the nonsense that goes on inside our parliaments really is genuinely quite disgraceful, right? So don't get me wrong, I'm not going to spend all my time defending them. But, you know, in almost every field, we need strong public policy, and public policy is determined by parliaments and it's determined by cabinets and it's determined by political leaders. You know, it doesn't matter. Like everyone can go, ah, oh, business can do this. And it's true. Business can do a lot of things. Corporates can do a lot of things. Community can do a lot of things. But you almost always need a backdrop of public policy, you know. You want to get a new industry up, it's going to take R&D. And R&D is going to come ultimately from government. You know, if it's coming from the private sector, it's probably going to be commercialised and owned. Right, so, so that doesn't mean that R and D doesn't come from the commercial sector, but you know, in the best world, you actually want a lot of the R and D to come from government. You want to operate in a regulatory environment that is clear and fair, and also enables you to have you know some sense that laws and rules, which are basic to a f- healthy functioning society, are going to be implemented and enforced. Right? These things require parliaments to do that. You know, whether it's in climate policy or it's environmental policy, more traditional environmental laws, things like that. So the starting point is we have to actually recognise that even if we don't like pollies, even if we think that their performance is not what we expect, we need them. And we need them to be as good as they possibly can. You know, it's a hard game politics. The expression of power is hard. It's brutal. The media amplify conflict. You know, the media are key players in some of the reasons why I think community people in general don't like pollies. It's in the media's interest to paint so many complicated issues into being black and white. They have to communicate a story in a minute Mm. or two minutes. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? There's this interchange of dynamics. You know, there's pollies that have the ultimate lack of job security, right? Like you sign up, you spend your life getting pre-selected, campaigning, finally winning a seat, finally performing in parliament, being a good fundraiser, being a good face in the media, you get in that ministerial office, you finally have some power to do things, right? Like it's a hard thing. And then you've got a job security of maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe three years, right? Then you've got this constant, then like the camera's full on because it is a hot house, you know, because everyone's in that bloody building, right? The media's in the building, Polly's are in the building, the staffers are in the building, all the lobbyists are in the building, everyone's in that bloody hothouse, right? And you're being scrutinised 24 hours a day. You're being scrutinised 24 hours a day. The media's looking for you to make a slip-up. Um, no one takes prisoners. The media's running in a very incredibly competitive environment too. They're trying to exercise power and influence to keep their gigs and keep their readers. Like, it's a tough place. And then there's, you know, 
lobbyists and interests and community and business constantly advocating for their bit. It's tough. So we've got to cut them some slack. This idea that they, you know, if I could imagine a world that didn't need parliament, fine. But, you know, I imagine a world where parliament is essential and where, in fact, the power of accountability that comes from voting is essential to make the change that needs to be changed. It ain't going to happen for authoritarian means. I know many people from the climate emergency set kind of go, well, what we really need is wartime powers and this and that and all the rest of it. Well, awesome. See how that works for you. See what the historical record of authoritarianism does to progressive social change. Let's just work that one out, hey? (laughs) We need democracy to work. We need our parliaments to work. And we need our politicians to succeed. We need them to succeed. It's our self-interest. So in defence of organisations like the Wilderness Society and others that engage in political advocacy, it's essential. It's just often misunderstood. It's misunderstood what you do, Lyndon, when you go to Canberra. So are there any more insights you can give us to what actually you're doing when you go? Persuading. Understanding the landscape, understanding what the actual debate is, understanding where the opportunities are, understanding how secure a minister or a government feels, understanding whether there is sentiment on the back bench to go and start advocating for progressive changes and policies, understanding where the opposition's sitting, understanding what the press gallery is doing. I go to Parliament not to lobby, but to understand where one of those key groups that is going to help generate long term change, the Parliament, is sitting. You know, I always say again to young campaigners, you go into a lobby meeting, you don't want to be talking. The job of a lobby meeting is to get the the target, the decision maker, to start engaging and start telling you what the barriers and problems are so that you can help them fix it. You know, so many so many young lobbyists walk in and they've got their prepared speech and they sit there and they've got their 20 minutes before the bells ring and they've got their 20 minutes to get everything out they want to say. No. Give them a briefing paper. They've decided to see you, so they're interested enough in you in the first instance to at least go and give you some time. The job is to engage them and get them to be talking to you about what's going to get in the way of your objectives. What does a good briefing paper look like to you, Lyndon? Bloody short. (laughs) (laughs) It's bloody short. These poor buggers get briefs everywhere. You know, they are overwhelmed with information, tactical, strategic, policy, political, media. Their life is horrible, you know. Um, Their life is hard, like they get benefits from it, but it's nuts. People have to understand it and see it, you know. And they often, particularly the opposition parties, they have no resources, you know. They actually have no resources. Like you walk into a shadow minister's office, they'll have an electoral staffer, They'll have maybe a media advisor and they might have one policy advisor. And, you know, if you're, for example, the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Environment, that's your resource, right? (laughs) So they depend on us to give them good, credible information, you know? So the briefing paper needs to be short because these guys haven't got much time. It needs to be right, you know? It can't actually be a bunch of rhetoric. If you're putting stuff in that briefing paper, it's got to be on the money, you know? So well, the, the resource is like well referenced, yeah, accurate, accurate. You know, because potentially your minister or the person you've just lobbied might be walking into parliament and using your briefing note. Yep. And if it's wrong, <laughs> well, you know, there you go. So you're talking one page of bullets. I, I remember years ago being trained in writing ministerial briefings, mm. and it was just it's such a it's such a challenging job. You it know, is. you've got to use minimal words to get really complicated issues on one page. 
Look, one of the things that was the best training for me as an advocate, which I'd never expected, was um, when I was at uni, I went to uni in Queensland, University of Queensland, I was doing an honours program in politics and government. And um, part of our job as young 20-year-olds who knew nothing was we had to read these four books that were called Landmarks in Political Science, right? And they were bloody big, epic books, you know? It was like the Beauvoir, the second sex, and it was this, that, the other. And we had to write a review of the books in 500 words. (laughs) Yep. And in terms of being incredible training of these incredibly important monuments of, you know, political thought, being able to convert these incredibly complex and epoch-changing thoughts and ideas into 500 words was great training. And it's the same as what you're talking about in terms of ministerial training, you know. You don't have to walk in of a giant report. You need to know that there's a giant report behind all this and you need to be know it's credible and you need to know that if the people you're trying to convince to take up your report, when they turn, try and take it into their party room or they try to take it wherever they're going to take it, that it's not full of nonsense. Because that makes you look bad, it makes them look bad. So if an organisation is creating a report on something to write a one-page briefing note on top of it, make sure the report is super fact-checked, you know, can't be picked apart. Advocacy research is crap. And I say this about everything, you know, one of my great laments as a campaigner was watching the proliferation of terrible policy research and terrible social research whose results were written before the report ever even got produced, you know? So it's skewed. It's skewed and it's nonsense. Everyone knows it's nonsense, you know? Crap polling that says everyone in society loves your idea is nonsense. It's fine for media because media is constantly trying to fill in time, you know? And so you find a slow day and you give them your dodgy polling and they don't have time to check it and they can say something inflammatory and then they'll get some response from people who are opposed to you and, boop, there's their minute and a half, right? So I can understand that there is some marginal value of crap advocacy research if you're trying to elevate your issue, maybe. But again, go back to this. It's in our own interest that the politicians do well. And so when we commission social research, don't commission it to think about the media and whether it's going to publicise your cause. Think about, is it accurate? You know? And there's never an issue. There literally is never an issue where 95% of Australians say yes to something and 5% say no. That does not exist. Yet so much of the crap research that gets produced says exactly that. Yeah. A much more credible piece of research is saying, you know, 60% of the people think this is a good idea. Like that's a much better piece of research, actually, if that's what it shows. Like many advocates will go, oh, that's terrible. You know, it means 40% don't agree. But that, for a politician and for people that are decision makers, that actually looks much more like the world they live in because they live in a world where they rise and fall on what 50.1% of people think. And your 60% if it's real, (laughs) it's credible, is actually much more powerful than some make-believe 95%. So I say that about social research. It's the same about policy and economic research. Yeah. So... Spend, if you're going to spend, spend on the thinking process, spend on, on the, the planning, thinking. on all the different possible pathways to the outcome and getting really good, high-quality, credible Absolutely. social economic research. And it may never see the light of day. It may never go public, and that's okay. But you've got to start from that first step, which says you need the polys to succeed. If that's not where your head's at, you're going to come up with a completely different answer to what I did. That's been my lifelong mandate, right? I believe in the system, even if it's myriad flaws, because every other system as someone who studied politics doesn't end well. 
in, when times where you need change. <laughs> so in the camp, thinking about campaigning nuts and bolts, you've done your solid research, you've talked to some of the some of the people you want to influence and you get a sense of where this common ground is. What what next? Yeah, look, it's um this is more conventional. You know, that first stage to me is much more important. And then there's the act of being a practitioner, you know, and there's almost, it's not formulatic, but it kind of is, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, there's well-developed social theory around all this stuff, you know, there's how do you develop a good media strategy that's engaging and, you know, what media outlets do you need to target and who's your audience and who are you trying to persuade and how do you train up people to become advocates? Like all that stuff is really important and any experienced campaigner will tell you, will give you a pretty good answer about what next, really, you know. Um, it's that startup phase. It's that first bit of thinking that, to me, is the most important. Okay. By a yes. country mile. Yep. All the rest of it, like, you know, I can spend another 10 minutes talking about, you know, the implementation of campaign planning and how you do it, you know, and there's the community bit, there's the politics bit, there's the business bit, there's the media bit, there's the organising and, you know, what have you bit. Like, they're all incredibly important. But if your basic <laughs> assessment isn't right in the first place, all that does is build the conditions for continued polarisation and you no know, movement and change. Yep. Yeah, and in fact, if your thinking is so woolly there and you've got the resources to go and do all these practical parts of what campaigning looks like, you could well be making the problem worse. <laughs> that's <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that's my view. You mentioned those nuts and bolts. Um, I do want to get you to quickly give me the overview of what those those different sections are and, yeah. and is there a relative you know in your sense is the organizing component community organizing more important or, or does it depend on the outcome it totally depends on the issue every yeah. campaign's different you know as i said there's a lot of work uh, both theoretical stuff and kind of practical stuff that's been done in social movements for the last 50 years around you know elements of successful campaigning and providing tools and i think they're all good right they're actually good they're useful things um but I'd also say every campaign is different, every circumstance is different, you know, and using a cookie-cutter approach or using a nice template and trying to cram every issue into it, it's not right, you know, and that's why understanding the problem and the solution up front is so important. Um, so, you know, I think there's some basic issues. You know, one of the things that I found really challenging around the climate issue, for example, and the interaction around fossils, in particular export fossils and um, public policy is we have many campaigns which are saying we really need to stop fossil fuel exports. But there's actually no tool to do that in Australia. <laughs> you know, scope-free emissions <laughs> are not regulated. That's what fossil fuel exports are. They're called scope-free emissions, right? And the Paris Agreement, which, you know, by and large, all environmental movement and climate groups support, the Paris Agreement is a roadmap to bringing down emissions and stabilising the climate, is really clear that... Export, fossils get dealt with where they get burnt, not where they get dug up with. So we have a camp, we have massive campaigns raging in this country right now right, that are really important and really significant and need to be resolved properly, which have no obvious public policy solution. That's fascinating. By isn't the it? federal parliament. Yep. So that to me tells me there's a problem there. So the campaign should be to change the definition of how all the accounting of Carbon to well, enable. That'd be my view. 
you know. (laughs) There shouldn't be just that. And what's happening right now is incredibly important, the blockades and the community building and the organising and the, you know, it's extraordinary. As I said at the outset, I'm not being critical. I'm just drawing on some my own reflections and my own experiences. But there is something I think there is a structural problem with some of those campaigns at present because some of them are based on the idea that the federal government must do something. But right now the federal government doesn't have a tool to do something and if it wanted to do something, it would have to dismantle the Paris Agreement. That's probably not a good idea. Mm, Interesting. So how do you get where you need to get to? What's your instinct on that? It can be your uh, top-line campaign plan for... Yeah, well, you know, like campaign plan has been Twizzers' campaign, the Wilderness campaign for the last five years, which is, you know, until you change public policy, until you change the environment laws, until environment laws deal explicitly with climate, until you have a transparent decision-making process around approvals of large mining projects, particularly fossil fuel projects, until you've got the best science, until you've got te- laws with teeth, all this stuff goes into a big pool of indecision and non-completion, right? So my answer's been the same answer for quite a long time. We've got to fix the settings, the environment and approval settings in Australia. If we don't do that, we will be running many of these types of campaigns for many years and there will not actually be a practical solution. And if the solution comes, it will be followed by such community disquiet polarisation and division that the ability to do it again will be limited even further. It's very interesting. On the Scope 3 emissions, are you suggesting that new laws in Australia could could be written to deal with that? Totally. Or is that an international no. decision? You could deal with it. Okay, that's you interesting. Know. But you could deal with it through different mechanisms, you know, like we have environment laws, uh, national environment laws in Australia don't talk about climate change. Yeah, it's insane. Like it's nuts, right? Look what we just experienced this summer. You know, what's the point of having national environment laws if you can't deal with the biophysical changes that are being created by climate change and the impacts that has on everything else that sits under those environment laws? You know, the Australian environment laws do two things, basically. They're supposed to be protecting, you know, uh, biodiversity, particularly through threatened species protection, threatened ecosystem protection, and they're supposed to regulate and put in place the highest standards for impact approval processes to allow major developments to happen. That's what they're supposed to do, Right. Both of these issues are fundamentally impacted by climate change considerations. You know, like approving a mining project, approving a mining project without taking into account its carbon emissions, its impacts, what it means to the global budget, what it means to those things. They mightn't, you mightn't be able to enforce decision making, but the fact that we don't even ask those questions, we don't even ask those questions is crazy, you know? Um, and the fact that, you know, we have, wildlife conservation plans and recovery plans, um, which are not taking into account the fact that the natural environment is changing because it's getting hotter and drier and that the solutions are going to have to change because of that and because of the consequent effects like drought and fire and what have you. The fact that our premier national environment laws does not even have any connection to any of that is a farce. Like for me, that's the most important singular public policy reform we could make, was have our environment laws actually recognise climate change as a bloody thing. And then to have complementary recognition across all the public policy, that's the fact. You know, we've got this crazy thing right now where, you know, we've got one part of the national government whose sole job is to go and find new fossil fuel um, deposits, 
you know, Geoscience Australia, its primary job is to go and find, you know, both new mining provinces, but particularly fossil fuel provinces, right? Like, that's its job. And that's what all the public servants inside that department, that is their job, and they are funded to do it, and they're very good at it. You know, talented geologists, great people, lots of coin, boats out drilling all over the place. You know, we've got a system of licensing where they're constantly handing out new licenses like confetti for new exploration permits for coal and gas and oil. And then we've got this other reality <laughs> sitting there which says the planet is cooking and we've got the biggest moral crisis of our time and we've got an international community trying to address it. Like the, the disconnect between that is like stupid. It's actually stupid. It's actually embarrassing. <laughs> That's why public policy matters, actually. You know, you can fix those things. They actually can be fixed. But if we don't focus on that... <laughs> They don't get fixed. Pressure has to be put on the right places to make the right changes. And these are not massive, have to be massive culture war changes. These are basic rational things. You've signed on to Paris. It's an international treaty. It is committing the country to getting to this point by this time. So is a very significant intervention then, a sort of quiet campaign that is about Defunding geoscience. Well, redeploying geoscience. Or using those geologists in more productive ways. Oh, yeah, totally. Like it's the power of the individual, you know. Ian McFarlane, who's now the head of the Queensland Resources Council and is one of the, you know, most (laughs) uh, persuasive advocates for the Adani coal mine. Like he was the resources minister in 2004 and he decided that what Australia really needed was more oil and gas and coal exploration, and he went and swung a lazy 60-odd million at Geoscience Australia, which in the whole context of the budget wasn't much, and set them off on a, man, on a pathway. And they've been continuing on that pathway now for, you know, a decade and a half and inadvertently creating conflict and division and polarisation behind them, you know, from the Kimberley to the bloody Bight to the Galilee coal fields to the Hunter region, like, you know, that's the decision by one person to allocate a surprisingly small amount of money, mm. and these are the ripple effects. Mm. This is why politics matters. Mm. And if you've got a distaste for politics, please try to reconcile that. Because you can't solve a problem without understanding the politics of the can't problem. can't understand a problem. Without, exactly. If you were advising a really cashed-up funder and walking in their shoes um, and you were advising them on the criteria they should use to look at the whole environment movement and try and pick a campaign that they should really invest in, what would be the key criteria you would suggest they use? Yeah, it'd be nice to be in that position. Um, (laughs) So, look, I think there's a few things. I think you have to invest in people. I think the people actually matter. I genuinely do. And not just our person but the team of people. I think that's really quite important. I think you need to see what the skill base and the experience base of the team is and actually really dig into that. You know, I think the best teams are diverse and have a diverse set of skills and experiences and outlooks, you know. I've got lots of views about the world, but I've always done my best work when I've been with a team of peers who question me and challenge me, you know, like that's just basic human organisation stuff from my perspective. So investing in people is really important. Investing in a track record of success you know, not just success in being able to score money, but actually success in making change. I think that's incredibly important. Um, I think the other thing I'd say to funders is let people experiment. Let people fail because none of this is easy. 
you got to create a learning culture. And I, I know funders try to do that because there's, you know, campaign reviews and evaluations and all this sort of stuff that goes on. But to me, the reviews and evaluation have just created another industry of consultants providing reviews and evaluations against kind of crap KPIs that actually don't necessarily always indicate whether the campaign's having success or not, you know. And you can have perfectly reasonable to have pitfalls and for things to get go wrong and there to be missteps. Like this is hard stuff. Changing the world's hard stuff. So don't punish people. Give them the bandwidth to experiment and try things. You know, force them to do that analysis and understanding. Force them to pull good teams together. Force them to be collaborators, you know. I think anything, anytime you listen to an advocate bagging every other organisation or individual around them, I reckon you should just turn off the clock and turn off the conversation because no one organisation can ever win anything, everything. You know, you need a coalition of ideas and interests and, and what have you. The other thing I guess I'd say is for those funders who have had rich lives themselves, you know, think about how you can help the campaign itself, not necessarily practically, but also what are the experiences you can draw on to help influence and provide feedback on planning and strategies and ideas, you know. Obviously, a lot of funders have got unique experiences. Often, a lot of funders are part of the power elite of the country, whether they like it or not. They have an insight into how the powerful work. (laughs) <laughs> often which advocates don't. So I think there's a lot of things there that are important. Are funders using their influence enough, do you think? I don't know. It was funny coming from the Wilderness Society because, you know, we really did rely, as you know, Sam, largely on small donations, you know, over our history. You know, the sort of members donating their 200, 300 bucks a year Like, that's not small, that's a significant contribution. But, you know, it's not millions of dollars. So our history has been dominated by, you know, thousands of ordinary people donating money to us. We don't have a strong history. Well, Twiz historically didn't have a strong history of big donors. You know, it's got a few and they're very lovely. Um, So I don't know. I I, I, I can't answer that question in some respects. I think... You know, there's, there's institutions like the Australian Environmental Grant Givers Network, which are important institutions that enable sort of, you know, collaboration and skill sharing and conversations. I think those those sort of foundations are actually really quite important and they probably should be bigger. There should be probably more of them, you know, around interests and what have you. So I think that's my answer, really. If a funder said, hey, Lyndon, I've got $5 million to give you to fix an issue, what campaign would you pitch right now? <laughs> it's a bit of a God, it's a bit of a whiteboard exercise. Um, there are a lot of important campaigns. Helping to convince those Australians who haven't made their mind up about camp about climate change that in fact climate change is the most important issue the country faces is what I'd invest in, to be honest. You know, there is a polarity, you see it. Like there's a thing called the Australian Election Study, which I carry on about a lot to anyone who asks me, so I'll do it again today. Um, which has been done by the Australian National University since the 1987 federal election. It's done every federal election since then. Um, Very few Australians engage in it. The media cover it once every three years and talk about it. But it's an incredible research um, uh, tool, publicly available. God bless public education. God bless our universities. Um, So the ANU get together with a whole bunch of other research institutions and campuses and, and universities that are interested in political attitudes 
and society attitudes and how they impact impact federal elections. Um, and you know the the twenty nineteen study was remarkable. You know, it involves workshops before it was released, trying to get the insights from the practitioners. It, it involves a large, essentially a giant focus group. You know, that constantly is talked to over a period of many months pre during and after a federal election about why they did what they did. Anyway, there's a whole lot of really interesting stuff around climate and the environment. And I say climate and the environment together because many Australians see them as separate, similar but separate, and in fact will rate their concern about the environment higher than the concern about climate change. So this election, the Australian election study, found that Australia's concern about climate and environment together was the highest on record. Probably not a surprise. You know, something like 23% of Australians said it was the number one most important issue, either environmental or climate. Well, that's significant. It was huge, huge. Jumped massively since 2016, but the highest on record. Wow. It was also clear that a large number of voters moved because of climate and environment issues, no doubt about it. Like, uh, they, can, they can track it. However, the strength of the Morrison campaign was economic management still trumped environment and climate, as it often has, and particularly concern around tax policies, one, you know, so in really raw two-party terms, Labor picked up a lot of votes from the coalition on climate and environment issues. Labor lost more votes on economic management and tax policy issues. That's why we got the result we got, right? One of the things, but, that the Australian election study detailed, was, you know, and anyone can read this, is that it asks a series of questions around how important climate and environment policies are to you and your voting decision, and it asks people based on their voting intentions and their voting decisions. Now, ALP voters, by and large, are brought into the game. They basically know that climate change is incredibly important, and the vast majority of them have rated climate as incredibly important. Very few said it was not important, or those are the criteria in the questions, is it? Very important, quite important, or not at all important. Greens voters, unsurprisingly, were even there on a higher scale, you know, like probably nine out of ten said climate change, most important, incredibly important. Other voters, which are now significant, you know, because this election was the first time that almost 20, a quarter of the electorate voted for others, right? Um, other voters, the majority said climate change is incredibly important. Only one group of voters didn't have a majority saying climate change and environment was an incredibly important issue. That was LNP voters. Right. LNP voters disproportionately were low in saying it's a very important issue, about 30%, still a lot, right? 30%. They were disproportionately high and said it's not important at all. Probably a third to 40% of their vote base say it's not important. They are your de deniers, right? They are just straight out right, nah. Not going to believe it, don't believe it, it's crap, human variability, you know, whatever. But the biggest single group of people that said it's quite important are LNP voters. So if I was going to be investing, I'd be investing in understanding who those people are. I'd be investing in how do you talk to them. I'd be investing in how do you reach out to them. I'd be investing in what's working and what's not. Because those people are swinging these elections. I bet you a lot of them live in Queensland. I bet you a lot of them live in Western Australia. I bet you a lot of them live in the suburbs. They know it's a problem, but we're not reaching out to them in a way that gives them confidence and security. We're giving them a story of catastrophe and fear. And these are often aspirational and optimistic Australians who believe in the future and believe in doing the right thing and believe in obeying the rules 
obeying the laws and working really hard and looking after your kids and looking after your family. These are good people. They are not the enemy. One key area that I haven't spoken about, and how can you not, is the bushfires. And that has changed so much about how environmentalists and also their funders are thinking and they're re-evaluating everything right now. How do you think it has changed the conversation in environmental circles? And I know it's hard because we haven't got the full data and we've talked a lot about the need to have the data to fully understand, but what's your, what's your instinct about how we can understand or how we can leverage the heightened interest that has been generated and how does that mesh with your analysis of this group that needs to be moved? Is there an opportunity there? I think it's a genuine reflection thing for all of us is how willing are we to really reach out to people who don't necessarily look exactly like us? I've seen a tendency around the climate issue for a desire for, you know, big business and civil society to get together, which I think is important, by the way. You know, someone I really respect a few days ago sort of showed, gave me their version of the world, which was, you know, Civil society, including the NGOs, one big circle. Government, one big circle. Business, big business, one big circle. And I looked at that and I said, right, that's why we've got Trump and that's why we've got Brexit and that's why we've got Morrison because there's a whole bunch of people who aren't represented in those three circles. (laughs) The environmental movement and civil society is big, no doubt, (laughs) but (laughs) uh, it ain't a majority, you know. Um, Workers' representatives weren't there. Regional people aren't there. Small businesses aren't there, you know. All those people aren't part of the equation for a lot of our core thinking. And that, oh, I wasn't bagging this person either. Bloody great thinker, great strategist, great leader. But, you know, I think we've got to be really genuine here about, you know, if we recognise that these people are actually critical and they have to become convinced to come on the journey and they have to want change to happen, we have to then change our approach and how we talk about these things because we've got to build the tents that they want to come in. Because if they don't want to come in, they'll keep on doing what they're doing, which is voting for a lack of action. So, you know, the bushfires, I think, are important. I think the bushfires obviously have had a huge impact on the environmental movement, environmentalists, and the grief is profound, you know, and totally understandable. I can see that. I think expecting the bar to be changed in wider public opinion may be misplaced. Because I genuinely think, as I've said, previously in this podcast that there's such a hardening around positions around climate now that those that believe it's about the fires were about climate are going to believe and they're not going to be changed. Those that believe it was about something else aren't going to be changed. And the question is, who is left to be persuaded? Mm. <laughs> now, in a simple democratic sense, it's a lot of people, right? Like I look back at the, what I said before about the election study, it's probably the majority of LNP voters. You know, but they're not necessarily for them to support climate action doesn't mean they're going to support all the other things that progressivists believe in. You know, because progressivists have a wonderful long list of things that we all believe in, uh, and they're all we all consider them to be equal. <laughs> you know, and so you've got to be good on gender, and you've got to be good on land rights and sovereignty. You've got to be good on climate change. You've got to be good on environmentalism. You've got to be good on this. Like it's a big long list. And if you watch Twitter too closely, you know you don't want to stray on one of the twenty. You know, I saw Grayson Perry quite recently um, at the 
uh, in Sydney, you know, the famous British um, ceramicist and, and artist, you know. And this person is, you know, part of the international elite and as woke as they come and as in the city as they come. But he gave this very interesting analysis around, you know, if you want to reach out to the middle, you've got to accept that the middle's not going to always agree with you on things. And if climate is the thing you want to reach out to them on, you probably need, if that's the most singly most important thing, that's where you've got to have the conversation and don't load it up with the other 50 pet projects you've got and ideologies and views you've got because that's going to guarantee you're not going to have a dialogue and you're not going to find a way forward. So um, these are big issues, challenging. We say it's the biggest issue in the world and it's the biggest issue to our future. We've got to act like it. I want to just circle back to the new laws campaign because you're actively involved still in that and I know a bit about it, but I've I've wondered whether, let's say, if you'd achieved campaign success four or five years ago and you had everything in place, do you think the bushfire response would have been different? Yeah. How? Oh, look, there's a lot of things that were clear, like around what happened over the months. You know, so the first thing was clear was that there was no expert body that was respected by government that could alert them early enough to be taking precautions that needed to be taken. Like the the ex fire chiefs are a fantastic institution; they're fantastic people, but you know, they're seen as being advocates, rightly or wrongly. You know, and if you're a Morrison and you've just been elected on being very sensible on climate change, a bunch of um, fire chiefs coming in saying the world's going to end. Um, is put through a political filter because they don't actually have a status. They have a status for their reputation, for their experience. They should have been listened to. Morrison should have listened to them because they're wrong, right? But that expertise should be hardwired into the system of government. It shouldn't require an advocacy campaign to make it happen. Those experts should actually already have standing and should be advising government every year on what's happening because the climate is changing, the place is getting drier. So if you had the sort of changes that I believe needed to be made, both in terms of public policy, in terms of independent institutions, in terms of the best science, the warnings would have come and they would have been heeded, right? They would have actually been heeded because they wouldn't have been seen through a partisan filter. And why is that? Well, because when something becomes part of government, when it becomes part of your institutions, when it's you know, when it's created through credible and transparent processes that are expert-based, the quality of the advice is given greater standing. When, you know, as I said before, in politics it's hyper-partisan and constantly under pressure. So building institutions that are respected by both sides of politics and respected by the parliament is critically important. Otherwise everything just becomes advocacy. Now, I spent a life being an advocate, right? I love advocacy. It's great. But, you know, if we're going to make the change we have to make, they actually have to be normalised and the institutions have to be respected. And those, the advice when it's given has to be treated as that is credible advice. This is what the Enlightenment was supposed to be about, right? Like knowledge as having a value. Knowledge not being a tool but knowledge being a value that helps the society bind and prosper and hold together. So I think if the changes we had have had needed, were in place. At the very start, the alarm bells would have been probably ringing and they would have been ringing for the last three years, Mm. you know. Smart people, scientists, knew this summer was coming for 24 months, at least. The science behind climate change says this was inevitable. 
that it was actually inevitable, right? But the government has no way of drawing on trusted advice in a way that doesn't politically harm it and enables it to govern because those institutions don't exist. So if an EPA was there, if there was that independent environment commission. Yeah, all those things. And if there was a grown-up relationship across the federation, you know, the issue around environment and climate change policy in Australia is because it is such a polarising and hot issue, the different levels of government don't talk to each other. You know, you could see that during the bushfire crisis. You know, they were communicating via media conference, for God's sake, you know? The federal government was deploying soldiers without talking to the fire chief of New South Wales, <laughs> you know, for goodness sake. Like, that shows you a failure in the federation, you know? 24 months ago, we should have had local, state and federal government preparing for what was coming because it was going to come, <laughs> you know? It was actually going to come. We would have had a lot more fire bombers ready. Oh, the whole caper, right? Or we would have known that the fire bombers wouldn't have been ready because, you know what, they actually come from the US and we only get them when the Americans don't need them. They'll be needed there. And the Americans needed it. You know, that their fire season was the longest on record too. I wonder why. Mm. I wonder what was happening. Funny business. Who knows? So, you know, again, small changes. When you look at them in the budgetary sense, are not massive. But in building expertise, nonpartisan expertise into the decision making of government, requiring and demanding that our states and our Commonwealth and our local governments work together, these are basic building blocks for how we can both manage and prosper in terms of what is a massive change that's coming our way. And we don't do that stuff. We just aren't doing it. You know, I'm welcoming the Royal Commission. I'm sure it'll be partisan and crap and all the rest of it. But the Royal Commission is essential because some of these things are actually the things that we need to be addressing. We don't have to be addressing who's right and who's wrong. You know, there'll be lots of unusual and strange debates that will come out of it. But can we just get our governments working together and can we get the expert advice around them that makes it safe for them to listen to expert advice? If we can do that, that would be an extraordinary achievement. Last question, Lyndon. Or is there an issue we haven't touched on that you... Think is important. Look, there's so to many raise. things that are important, right? And I think the role of the corporates and all this is really important. I know for me, particularly, you know, you think about the funder community, many funders come from a private sector background. The corporates have got a real role, you know. I went to a, uh, a conference this week in Canberra, it was put on by the Business Council for Sustainable Development. And it was, it was a great conference, it was really interesting. But again, you know, I kind of get this sense that there's no common ground where different parts of society and the economy can talk together, you know. There's no common ground where politics and business can talk. There's no common ground where, you know, we're missing institutions and places where it's safe to talk. So I think there's a lot there to talk about in terms of the role of business um, and the role of corporate Australia and potential role, but also it's a bit like some of the other things. There's a lot to talk about in terms of collaboration and understanding, you know. Corporates understanding politics, politics understanding corporates, civil society understanding all those things, workers being represented fairly and adequately. So anyway, but that's a whole other conversation, which is not for today. Thank you so much, Lyndon. Thanks, Sam. Great to chat. Thank you for listening to Agents of Policy Change. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate the show as this helps other people find it. And please get in touch with your comments and suggestions at samhardyphilanthropy.com.au. 